Lord reigns. Let's pray together. Father, you reign. You are a mighty conqueror. Lord, and we know this to be true because we read it in your word. And so as we turn now to your word, God, we ask you would continue to speak. Father, would you set aside things that might distract? Lord, would you guard error from my lips? Might we hear you speak, Father, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Judges, chapter 5, Judges 5, and as you're finding our text for today, permit me to share a brief story from our nation's past. June 18th, 1812, then President of the United States, James Madison signed the American Declaration of War. This law put forward by our Congress was the culmination of years of growing unrest between the United States and her allies and the United Kingdom and her allies. And with the taste of defeat from the Revolutionary War still fresh on the British palate, and as Napoleon's armies began to ravage Europe, England struck out at any and at all who were associated with their French enemies. To this day, most British historians view the War of 1812 as a small theater in the much larger Napoleonic Wars. And thus, while the principal conflict they view uh, fighting between France and England occurred on the continent in Europe, they see the War of 1812 as the American reaction to British defensive efforts aimed at limiting her and her French allies' expansion. And then an unpopular war, and one which despite a different tone to that, fought a quarter century before, still ended similarly, praise the Lord. The British did manage to burn our capital and prevent the American invasion of Canada. However, they failed to take back the states of New York and Maryland, despite concentrated efforts to that end. The Battle of Baltimore was one brutal engagement in Britain's invasion plans, which thankfully failed, as in 1814, following the intense bombardment of Fort McHenry, American forces held firm, and their flag still flew. Now, as we all know, it was this symbol of patriotism and stubborn resistance in the face of an enemy that was determined that led a young lawyer, Maryland native, who has a hotel down in Ocean City, Francis Scott Key, to pen a poem, just kidding, in celebration of his countrymen's courage and defiance. The defense of Fort McHenry, as Key's poem was titled, was later put to music to a tune of a song which I know we're all familiar with, although I doubt we know the tune's original name, to Anacreon in Heaven. Now, in time, this song grew in popularity until a century later, it was President Woodrow Wilson who made official its place as our nation's national anthem. The Star-Spangled Banner was first and foremost a poem celebrating the American spirit. It recounts a battle in which Key sat helplessly aboard a British vessel, a witness to the wrath of his nation's enemies as it, as it emptied its cannons on the American forces at Fort McHenry. But while Key's work is based on an historical event, it remains a poem. Using flag imagery and descriptive phrasing, Key set out to vilify America's enemies while celebrating national pride. And thus, while Key wrote with clarity, the symbolic nature of poetic verse means that there are certain phrases with multiple interpretations. In fact, scholars to this day debate some of Key's intended meanings. This is just the nature of poetry. However, while there may be ambiguity 
in specific, what remains as clear as crystal for us all, is that song's overall intent, which for Key as the writer was the celebration of American patriotism. And so church, I share this story this morning for several reasons, which many of you may have even begun to pick up on. Because if you look at how our NIV introduces chapter 5, then you'll, you'll have noticed that our text today is a song or a poem, Deborah's song. And those who, of you who were with us last week and who've been studying this week, this text in preparation for this morning, then you know that this story or this poem is celebratory. Deborah's song is the celebration of God's victory over Jabin, king of the Canaanites. And so, like Key's song celebrating American resilience against British invaders, Deborah's song celebrates Yahweh's deliverance from Canaanite oppressors. Both are poems, meaning that the text, as we're going to see it together, can't be understood literally, for there's a lot of description. There's a lot of hyperbole here. If you were to read this song in the ESV, the NIV, and say, take the Holman, or even the NASB, just as examples of English translations, you'd be surprised by the textual variations. Such is the challenge that poetry poses to translators. At the same time, what I believe is going to be abundantly clear as we study this song together is its overall purpose, which is to celebrate Yahweh's great salvation. So, let's read then together Deborah's song, Judges 5 and verse 1, where our author writes, On that day Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased, ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys sitting on your saddle blankets and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his warriors in Israel. Now let's just stop there because I believe that this stanza break here might be used to identify a first key theme in this song, which is the coming of Yahweh. The coming of Yahweh. The first verse of chapter 5 informs us of who this song's first singers were, Deborah and Barak, and the occasion on which this song was first performed, the day on which God subdued Jabin, king of the Canaanites. Now, when you consider these two facts and the tone of the song's opening lines, it's clear that this song was the spontaneous creation of a couple thrilled by God's deliverance of his people. Like Key's words penned in response to the sight of old glory still flying high over Fort McHenry after a night of bitter bombing. Deborah and Barak 
saw Sisera's head nailed to the floor of his tent, his troops strewn across the plain of his Dralon, and they burst out singing God's praise. When the princes in Israel take the lead, meaning when the leaders rally God's people and they willingly then enlist in God's army, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings, you enemies of God's people. Listen, you pagan rulers who worship idols. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why? And verse 3 informs us that it's because of Yahweh's arrival. And before we go any further, I want to be sure to point out why this song may sound familiar to some of us this morning. And I want to do this now because I'm convinced that as we get further into Deborah's song, this sense is only going to grow. So if you would just keep your fingers here in Judges 5 and for a moment, flip back to the book of Exodus and find chapter 15. Exodus 15, and I can see a couple smiles suggesting that a few of you knew exactly where we were going to go. And that's good. That's good. Exodus 15. In, in Exodus 15, we have what our NIV calls, or what our NIV titles, the Song of Moses and Miriam. So a man and a woman. It's actually a brother and a sister. But a man and a woman, just like Deborah and Barak, who had recently witnessed God's incredible salvation of his people. As you recall from this story in Moses and Miriam's case, this was the waters of the Red Sea crashing back down on Pharaoh and his chariots, destroying their pursuers and separating them from their enemies. Does that sound familiar for those who were with us last week and examined chapter 4? Chariots stuck in mud, kings separated, their armies defeated. And we're not going to comparatively analyze these two songs, but we could. And I think it'd be a fascinating project. But these two songs, and I think we could do it, but I want you to notice, first of all, those two, two words, or the beginning right there of Moses and Miriam's song. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. Those are words almost identical to Deborah and Barak's proclamation in Judges chapter 5. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the God of Israel. So, two songs... Two couples singing, two instances of salvation, but the same great God, who in chapter 5 of Judges and in verse 3, Deborah and Barak describe as going out from Seir and marching from the land of Edom. And this is poetic reference here, and it's one of those instances that I spoke of a moment sooner where the, it's unclear what our author or singers intended originally. It could be there a description in chapter 5 of Judges of Yahweh's departure for the battle in which he defeats Sisera. It could also reference Yahweh's revelation of himself to his people when they were in Egypt. Because you notice how there in Judges 5 verse 5, God is described as the, the Lord, the one of Sinai. And that's why I said as we move further into the song sung by Deborah and Barak, it would begin to sound more and more like that of Moses and Miriam's. But that said, and regardless of what Seir and Edom actually intend, what's clear is that Yahweh's coming is accompanied by a demonstration of his power over his adversaries. Because you remember Canaan's God was Baal. He was a God of fertility and of storms. So the Canaanites believed that Baal sent the rain. He, he shook the earth by his thunder. He lit up the sky with his lightning. However, the outcome of the battle we've just studied would suggest otherwise, wouldn't it? 
And so here, Deborah and Barak sing of Yahweh's power over Baal as he, Yahweh, shook the earth. He directed the heavens to dump their contents on Mount Tabor just as he had when the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. And Church, I believe that at this stage in her song, Deborah has two points for us. The first is clearly God's omnipotence. He's unfazed by those that we would consider adversaries, right? And he, he's supreme. And therefore, he, he's able to display his opponents' weaknesses to their everlasting shame. We're the ones who would view the Canaanites as a threat. And they are, in a sense, I mean, that we all have Canaanites in our lives, so to speak. Uh, oppressors who discourage, dissuade, and seek to enslave us. Now, for some, these struggles, as we have them, are self-inflicted, aren't they? They, they? they come as we, like the Israelites before us, sin. And now we're forced to live with the consequences of those poor choices. For others, the Canaanites in their lives are simply expressions of life lived in a world that's broken. But regardless, God remains supreme, doesn't he? You know, in whatever form the Canaanites may take in your life this morning, be encouraged. Why? Because our God is bigger. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher, as the song says, than any other. The first point that I believe Deborah desired her audience to hear is that God is omnipotent. And then the second is that God doesn't change. The God who came from Seir and, and from Eden to Mount Tabor and set Israel free from Jabin is the same God who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and delivered the people of Israel from Pharaoh. The God of the Bible doesn't change. And as we can only know him as such, as he has revealed himself to us, meaning in the scriptures. And so this is why we, we love God's word. This is why we as a people gathered Wednesdays and Sundays to study. It's why we have guides to direct our reading of it daily. Deborah sings of God's great and unchanging character. And then she contrasts Yahweh's strength with his people's weakness. Verse 6 through 9 there, we're informed how from the days of Shamgar through those of Jael, no one traveled the main roads, with the implication, I believe, being that they just weren't safe. Village life would have usually been the center of, of city and activity and growth for these people was dead. War had come, we're told, to the city gates, war resulting from Israel's choice of new gods. So rather than relying on Yahweh, Israel had once again done evil in the eyes of the Lord. They turned to worship Canaan's idols, and therefore they were suffering, just as the psalmist described Psalm 16, where he warned, the sorrows of those will increase who run after new gods. And friends, I, I believe there's a subtle warning to heed here. The circumstances that Deborah is describing are tragic. Absolutely. But do you notice how the people are described as still traveling? No longer able to take the main roads. These guys now took to what we're told were winding paths. We're creatures of habit, aren't we? At least I am. I know I am. And so when I find that something breaks, my, my natural inclination is to fix it. But often, if I'm able to find a temporary solution, then I'll, I'll catch myself becoming comfortable with the new status quo. So rather than being troubled to solve the original problem, I settle. And church, this is how sin works. So say we do something wrong. Maybe we offend a friend or, or we hurt a family member and it damages that relationship such that the main roads of fellowship can no longer be traveled. At first, we're broken by it, right? But in time, we begin to find winding paths. 
to get ourselves to where we need to go. And while they aren't convenient, they work, so to speak. And little by little, we become accustomed to the new normal. Friends, the tragedy here in this scenario is that our life's reality remains as Deborah sings without true peace. And it feels like we are under constant attack, incapable of fending off frustration. Is this your life's experience? Because if it is, I pray that you consider the righteous acts of the Lord. Because this is the only way that we may find complete victory over sin. And come to know His perfect peace and lasting peace. For Yahweh has come to save, just as He came to save Israel from Jabin's power. So He's come in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, to set us free from sin. Do you know Him? Have you experienced His complete healing and freedom? So Deborah sings of Yahweh's coming, which is the first theme, I believe, marking her song. The second theme regards Yahweh's people. Yahweh's people who are the focus of verse 11 through 23. So would you look back with me now then to the second half of verse 11 and follow along as we continue reading. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up! Wake up, Deborah! Wake up! Wake up! Break out in song! Arise, O Barak, take captive your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then the men who were left came down to the nobles, the peoples of the Lord, came to me with the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. In the districts of Reuben... There was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the heights of the field. Kings came. They fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo, but they carried off no silver, no plunder. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river of Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hoofs. Galloping, galloping go his mighty steeds. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord. To help the Lord against the mighty. Church, did you notice the clear contrast between those who rallied to battle Canaan's kings and those who didn't? These verses describe Israel's tribes, all of whom fell under the thumb of Jabin. But for some, their distance from Hazor certainly reduced their sense of servitude and obligation to their compatriots. On the one hand, you have all these Israelites, you have Ephraim. You have Benjamin, Zebulun, and Issachar, all of whom, we're told, stepped up and willingly served in the battle against Sisera. On the other hand, there's Reuben, Gilead. And Gilead is just a reference to the tribe of Manasseh who settled Gilead. You have Dan, as well as Asher. And what's really sad about these tribes' failure isn't the fact that they were ignorant about what was coming. Our song sings how in the districts of Reuben there was much searching of heart, twice. Once verse 15, and then again in verse 16. So Reuben knew what Deborah and Barak were about. They knew the battle was about to come, and they hesitated. 
they debated what they should do. Yahweh promised his people salvation. He sent word through Deborah, but her invitation to participate was met with excuses. It's, this is not a good time to leave the sheep, man. Business is too good right now. Ships are coming in. We've got to be on the docks to help these guys unload. Besides, there are a number of barriers between us and you, and by the time we cross those guys, the battle will probably be over. Excuses. And I can't help but feel that Jesus had this song in mind when he shared the story of the great banquet. You remember that parable? In Luke 14, as Jesus was reclining at the table of a prominent Pharisee, he told the story of a certain man who prepared a great banquet. And to this feast, he'd invited all of his friends, but upon receipt of their invitations, each came up with an excuse. I've just bought a field, said one. I've just bought five yoke of oxen, said another, while a third announced his recent marriage as his excuse. None of those invited to the celebration came. And Jesus' point was the blessing of God's salvation isn't knowing about it. It's participating. It's experiencing it. So to this end, we see Deborah seeing how Israel's deliverance was Yahweh's sovereign, mighty work. But his people weren't to sit passively by. They were called to actively participate as clearly communicated there, verse 23, which states to come to the help of the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty ones. Church, salvation is God's work, and he works it in us by his grace, but we work it out by faith. And I believe this song also reveals as one theologian explains, that it speaks ill of us when we are satisfied to rest secure while our brothers and sisters are struggling and suffering. It reveals a hurt or a heart unbound by the bonds of brotherly love. It's tragic, church, when any Christian, apostle or otherwise, has to say, as did the apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy, no one has come to my aid. Everyone deserted me. Emmanuel, we have... Christian brothers and sisters the world over who are being persecuted daily for their faith, imprisoned when they attempt to gather to study God's word, beaten when they're found to have copies of it, while we struggle to fit such practices into our daily habits. We'd rather sit and talk than study God's word, hang out than pray for God's people. Deborah sings about the coming of Yahweh. She sings about the people of Yahweh. And then about the servant of Yahweh. Would you look back with me now to verse 24? Verse 24 where Deborah declares, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk in a bowl fit for nobles. She brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. <laughs> Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not binding and dividing the spoils? A girl or two for each man, colorful garments as plunder for Sisera, colorful garments, embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this is plunder. you got to love the descriptions here, right? I love this. Verse 24 to 27, we have Yahweh's servant described as the most blessed 
of women. And then we're given this explicit description in two statements of her victory over Sisera. And the point of these two statements, I believe, is to convey the complete nature of Yahweh's victory. Meaning this is not a contest. God used Jael to crush his enemy, not to wound. This was a total shattering of Sisera. Now, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of study given to the role of Jael here and its intent and the intent of this song as it casts her in the role of God's servant. And we spoke about this some last week. I believe that much of the contemporary concern for what this might teach us regarding equality and, and rights reflects modern sentiments that weren't at the heart of our author's original design. Because do you notice here in our song how Jael's character is contrast with Sisera's mother, verse 28 to 30. Not Sisera himself. And the significance of this is that Yahweh's victory is what is enhanced. As these two women are set side by side, where Jael smashed her opponent, Sisera's mother pines for his return. Jael's confident victory is then offset by Sisera's mom's nervous uncertainty. It's a sentiment humorously conveyed by her motherly musings. And church, the glory of Yahweh's salvation has worked through this most unlikely of servants, I believe, portends the coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant of Yahweh, who didn't come as a mighty king, a warrior, riding his valiant steed, surrounded by his powerful armies, but rather as a humble carpenter on a colt, followed by a ragtag band of 12 disciples composed of fishermen, political radical, a tax collector, and a betrayer. Jesus came and fulfilled a promise made all the way back in Genesis 3.15 where God prophesied that one day the offspring of a woman would what? Crush Satan's head. So just as Jael crushed Sisera's head in her tent near Kedesh on Calvary, Christ crushed Satan's head. So have you experienced Christ's victory over sin as it's described in the scriptures? Over sin and death? Because if you have, then you know that about which Deborah sings as she ends her song, proclaiming the kingdom of Yahweh. So we've seen her sing of Yahweh's coming, his people, his servant. Now let's hear her address Yahweh's kingdom. Look at verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may those who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And then the land had peace 40 years. Church, in Matthew 46, we have a record of Christ's teaching on prayer. And this divine petition is one with which I'm sure we're all familiar, and it begins with the words, Words of praise, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Before making this request, thy kingdom come. The coming of Yahweh's kingdom is the coming of his rule over all. As Jesus, his prayer continues, your will be done. Wherever Christ reigns, his will is done. And wherever his will is done, there is his kingdom. There can be no resistance to or rejection of God's will in his kingdom. Thus, Christ's request, as voiced in Matthew 6, is for the very thing of which Deborah sings here in Judges 5.31, that all of Yahweh's enemies perish. And 
when Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Thessalonica for the second time, he addressed God's people's need for perfect peace and how this would only come supremely with Christ's return. And in chapter 1, verse 5, he reminded them of their suffering and that their suffering is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy, he says, of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen, he said, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, he adds, because you believed our testimony to you. Does this promise written by the Apostle Paul all those many years ago, include you. Have you believed the testimony of the gospel? You've heard it today. As Deborah sang of Yahweh's servant, she pointed forward to God's promised Messiah who would come like us in every way yet without sin. He would come this most unassuming Savior and crush Satan's head once and for all. He would take on himself our sin die in our place, thus satisfying God's just wrath. Christ was then placed in a tomb and three days later rose. And now he reigns over all. And whoever repents of their sin and believes in him may share that victory. Guys, do you know the greatness of our God's salvation? Can you sing with Deborah and Barak and Moses and Miriam and all the saints who have gone before us of God's amazing grace? Or have you decided to Ignore his invitation and to live life as best you can in your own strength, satisfying for winding roads that get you to a dissatisfying end. You know, there are a number of tribes in Israel who were invited to share in God's glorious salvation. But they found excuses. And I pray that you won't. Don't leave without addressing your life's brokenness because no one is guaranteed tomorrow. The Star-Spangled Banner is our, na our national anthem and therefore it has significance only for those who are citizens of this great land. Deborah's song was recorded to remind God's people of His great salvation. Therefore, it had significance only for those who'd experienced the reality of which it sang. What does Deborah's song mean to you this morning? Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are God, and you save. Father, you save by grace, through faith in Christ. Lord, for your glorious purposes, which make much of you and your grace, you have chosen your word spoken to be the means by which you, by your Spirit's enabling, bring hearts to life, open eyes to sin's reality, and lead 
men and women to confess their need of a Savior. Father, I pray this morning that as your word has been spoken, your spirit has taken those words and has begun a work that only you can begin in hearts, in minds, in lives. Father, we, we thank you that the salvation that you provide is complete. Father, we're not partially saved and then left to work the rest of this out alone. Father, we are saved completely. Lord, we who have come to life in Christ are yours in entirety. And the life we live now, we live in a growing appreciation of what you have worked for us in Christ Jesus. Father, we look forward, as the Apostle Paul said, to the prize of one day being in your presence for eternity. God, we struggle to wrap our minds around that as we are still battling our fallen flesh. But you have given us victory. And Father, we, we pray today that in light of that victory, that you would grow us so that we might more fully reflect the gospel to men and women that live near us, who work with us, that they might see the hope and joy that we found that never changes. Father, I pray that Deborah's song is a song of celebration in which we may all join in because the salvation it sings about, we share. Father, thank you for your grace so beautifully pictured for us. Thank you for your word that remains the same across the ages, proclaiming this hope to your people. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name.